Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping B2B marketers do better marketing through content, community, and social media. My name is Jason Bradwell, and every week I sit down with whip-smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build an audience strategy that scales from day one, and that also delivers real business results, not vanity metrics. If you've come here for theory, then you may be in the wrong place. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. So today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Tom Bangay, Director of Content at Juro. How are you doing, Tom? Very good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. It's lovely to be chatting with you on what is a sunny Friday afternoon, and I appreciate you taking the time at the end of your week to sit down with me to talk a little bit about what you've been working at uh, at Juro. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. So tell me a little bit about your role and tell me a little bit about Juro. What do they do? Sure. So um, I'm the director of content at Juro, so all things content in content marketing. Um, and Juro is the all-in-one contract automation platform. So we help um, lawyers and other people who need to deal with contracts to manage and agree and sign them and all that kind of thing um, in browser. Cool. So quite a specific product for quite a specific audience, would you say? Very, very, very specific. Yeah, I think... Um, looking a bit further down the line, a kind of addressable market for contracts. It's like every business in the world. But in terms of um, stakeholders you need to appeal to in the beginning, the universe of people interested in contract automation, probably fair to say quite small compared to some other verticals, yeah. Hmm. And you said you're the director of content, but we were talking a little bit before we started recording. You don't just do content because Jura is very much a startup. Um, Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day. What does that look like? God well. Um, so I think in the early days at startup, obviously you're wearing lots of hats. And I think when I arrived in the company as employee number 12, um, that's super early to hire someone fairly senior in content, but the founders both really kind of understand the short, medium and long-term value of having that expertise in the team. So um, aside from producing like native content for content marketing, I also look after Churro's community um, I look after kind of sales enablement, so case studies, sales collateral, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then a bunch of other stuff, which I do because we're early stages and anyone else to do it. So I'm um, looking after kind of brand tone of voice. So the word related parts of brand, um, the style guide, even product copy, just to make sure that it's um, consistent with how we sort of position as a brand. And then odd things like PR and events and stuff like that. Very much a kind of a startup role, uh, lots of lots of different hats. And you mentioned mm-hmm. the Juro community, and that's why we're talking today, because you penned a really good article recently about the work that you and your team have done of building Juro's community, um, which is very much a tangible thing. It is a, a platform, a place online for people, uh, your target buyers to come together to connect and to learn from one another. Um, and uh, uh, this is a trend that I'm seeing more and more in B2B, um, you know, brands, instead of just kind of engaging with third party communities around things like trade shows and conferences and trade journals and things like that, really staking a claim of ownership around becoming the new town square for, for their target buyers to come together. So Tell me a little bit about the Juro community. What is it? Who is it for? How is it run? Why does it exist? Hmm. Yeah, so I think in terms of who it's for, first of all, which is probably the most important thing because um, that defines who's there and who isn't, which is really like what a community is, is all about. Um, 
So the community is for in-house lawyers and legal ops professionals at scaling businesses. Um, and generally, those kind of people are also the people who get the most value from a product like Jura. Um, so if you take the flip side of that, like that's who it's for, who's it not for? Um, the people that cannot join and are not permitted are uh, private practice lawyers. So if you think about the legal industry, uh, specifically in the UK, I guess, there's like three kinds of lawyer, roughly. I mean, there's more than this, but in-house lawyers working inside companies or organizations, um, private practice lawyers working at law firms, barristers. Don't worry about barristers. Um, private practice lawyers um, are a problem for a company like us because we only really sell to in-house lawyers. Um, and that's not because we hate private practice lawyers, it's because the things they need to do with contracts are different from the things that in-house lawyers need to do with contracts. The problem is that um, very rationally, they are obsessed with in-house lawyers because that's their clients. So they follow them around. So any marketing activity we do, whether it's an event we put on, something we put out as the download or whatever it might be, probably half of the traffic or half of the downloads or whatever are gonna be private practice lawyers. And they are being very kind to them, but they're completely useless to us. We don't need them. So um, <laughs> it's a waste of time having them. And then if you can also add to that list of people that are, wouldn't be allowed to join um, consultants. So there's lots of consultants who help in-house lawyers with optimizing their processes or like various parts of their job. Again, useless to us because they, they don't buy Jira. Um, students, law students, um, hopefully one day will become the users of the future, but they don't really have any um, value they can get from what we do, so we kind of don't need them. And then also the marketers of competitor companies, like yeah, just flood your events and try and find out what to do. So um, the community is um, in, invite only in a sense. There's a very strict door policy, so people can't get in who are not in-house lawyers at scaling businesses. What it actually is is obviously an invite only Slack group. That's where most of the conversation happens. There's a curated jobs board where we find the, the right roles for them and um, refresh that daily. Um, we run closed or private events. So everyone on the call is going to be a peer of yours. There's not going to be anyone who's not an in-house lawyer at a company just like yours, uh, which is super valuable. There's a weekly newsletter which kind of collects stuff that's happened in the group and promotes future events. And then there's exclusive content and peer networking. Um, and it's run by me and um, my content editor on the team. Um, now, in terms of why it exists, so I think for them, um, the way we position it is it helps them to scale legal because all of these people are in a business that's growing really fast. And you might go from like 50 to 500 employees and you'll go from having one lawyer to maybe two lawyers in that period. So how do you take the work of a lawyer and scale it without hiring more people? All of these people are obsessed with that. Um, we want to help them to scale the business. They're all interested in enabling their businesses to grow. So I don't just want to mess around with low value contracts. I want to help with all of the stuff that I know, help this business to grow. Um, and then also to scale their careers. So if you're a kind of midweight legal person um, in one of these companies, how do you become a general counsel? How do you become a chief legal officer? What do you do when you don't want to be a GC anymore? How do you keep moving up? Um, so that's what we're for to them. I think for us, the reason it exists is, I guess, <sighs> It depends who you ask in the, in the business. <laughs> for, for marketing, it's kind of a nurture play. Um, so we just kind of like, there are people who are not ready to buy. Um, that's fine. Not everyone's ready to buy. Not everyone would get value from the product, but we want to talk to them. Like we want to be front of mind if they ever are. Um, and it's an extremely effective way to basically put ourselves at the center of their lives. 
there are lots of other benefits as well. Like you can't really overstate how much you learn about your ideal customer if you just watch them interact with each other. Um, so the questions they ask each other, you actually get an unfiltered view of the problems they have at work rather than your assumptions about the problems they have at work. So it's super useful. Um, so that's really what it is. I think I answered your question. No, absolutely. You did. It's uh you know, it's this concept of kind of in-market demand and out-of-market demand, in-market demand, if you can get your current customers or customers that are close to being ready to buy Juro into the community, it's a great way to help get them over the line. But then it's also a great way to stay connected to those out-of-market customers who may not be ready to buy today, but maybe ready to buy in a year's time, two years' time, three years' time, whenever. Um, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's really interesting in how you've been so selective in terms of the criteria um, for people's eligibility to come into the community. Um, we'll talk a little bit in, in, in a few moments about the success of, of the community to date, but do you think this has kind of, you know, hindered your ability at all to, to, to grow the community by saying, you know, we're only allowing, you know, of these six groups of people that may be interested in, in, in coming in, this, this one select core group? Do you think that's kind of hindered or, or hurt your ability to scale or helped it? Um, it's a good question. So there um before we like set about creating this thing obviously we did um research and looked at i guess the competitive landscape what are the groups are out there um there's an excellent group in the uk called the disruptive gc network um which is for the head lawyer the top lawyer whether that's general counsel or head of legal however the company has decided to, to structure that role at um, an innovative disruptive scale-up business um so there's you know, at first sight, you could see there's a bit of an overlap there. However, um, that group, it's an excellent group, um, only lets in the most senior lawyer in a company. So there are some companies that have like 50 lawyers. So what do the other 49 do? Um, and also they're quite um, selective about who they let in in terms of their company type. Um, and I think for them, that works really, really, really well. Like it, all of the legal tech companies like us in the, in the UK particularly, would love to get into that group and try and sell to them, um, which is probably one reason why it's such a good group because we can't get in there. Um, but I think like the, the sort of level of peer-to-peer um, -peer networking facilitated there in a group where there is no vendor, there's no one like us, everyone in there is GC, we can't really compete with that. Um, so there's not really any point trying to do that. Um, what we found instead is that um, there's actually a lot of knowledge sharing that goes on between the different kind of levels, number one. And number two is there's a more international component to it. So we have members in like kind of, I don't know, maybe 15 European countries and in the US, Canada, Australia and stuff like that. And some things are common between jurisdictions and some aren't. So I think in terms of whether um, we've got that strict door policy right, you know, are we, are we constricting it too much or are we letting too many people in? Um, it's probably too early to tell, but I think at this point, I'm pretty much happy with, the, the door policy, because the risk is if you let too many people in, it becomes anodyne and the kind of peer networking is not true peer networking because you're not in a group of people who have the same challenges as you. Um, but it's something you have to keep a really, really close eye on. And um, every time we reject someone, which we do do quite often, we do contact them and explain why. Um, and often they're, they're enthusiasts who totally get what we're doing and they, they'd be really keen to understand what's happening in the group but we just can't let them in. I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but uh, one of the things that struck me about the article that you wrote about what you're, what you're building over at Jura was the fact that you've actually banned your own sales team from entering the community. I'm keen to understand that decision. 
I'm also keen to understand how it was taken by the sales team when you told them, no, you're not coming in. Um, how do I be diplomatic about this? Actually, no, they're, <laughs> they're, they're very understanding because uh, they kind of get the strategy behind it. The, the why was very clearly explained. I think to a new sales executive, let's say a new account executive joining the company, if you just said to them without any context, hey, I've got a slight creep here of 300 of our perfect buyers, you can't come. <laughs> they'd, they'd probably be slightly confused and quite hostile. Um, but what we kind of the decision we made quite early on was if we have a group where we get people in on the premise of getting value in, and networking and stuff like that from their peers, and then we have industrious salespeople sliding into their DMs trying to pitch them, they're just going to leave um, like I would. So it, it was a bit of a difficult circle to square. Like we needed it to be a safe place where they felt they could talk to us as a company without constantly being sold to. And, you know, we're a venture backed um, company. So our sales targets quite aggressive. Our sales team are exceptional and they're, they're always looking for ways to sell. So that would definitely happen if we, if we let them in. But once we kind of made it really clear why we're doing this um, and set out some rules of engagement, it actually made it, better for, for selling than without it. So to give you some examples, um, I think we can't have any selling in the Slack group, right? So we can't have people saying, oh, hey, I'm a sales executor. Can I take 10 minutes to talk to you about contract process? However, if someone who's in the Slack group requests a demo, they get treated like anyone else would. Um, similarly, any of the kind of intent triggers that um, would uh, initiate a sales process um, with a lead if someone's a community member and they meet that threshold, then they're treated like anybody as well. Um, so it's not that these people can't be sold to, that would be suicidal to collect them in a, in a <laughs> reservoir. It's just that we have to separate the value we're giving them from the value they could potentially um, get from buying the product. We just have to keep them separate. Um, I would say it's worked far better than I could have hoped. So the, I guess I, I, I tried to look at some stats when you were talking about measuring success. So kind of surface level stuff, marketing stuff, um, the newsletter, which is a weekly newsletter um, that we send to members has an open rate of about 65% and a click through of about 40%, wow, which is right. like off the charts. Um, I think the, the really interesting stuff is because I, I don't like there's lots of vanity metrics in, in content marketing and having spent a few years at a startup now, I really only care about revenue. It's like the only thing that matters, everything else can be massaged. Um, if there is a sales opportunity who was a member of the community before they had to make a decision whether or not to go ahead, whether or not to buy, um, the close rates on those, the close rate on those deals is more than 60%, wow. which again is like off the charts. And then if we look at all of the, just finished Q2, if we look at all of the new customers that we added in Q2, maybe two thirds of them um, were qualified to be community members. So there'd be a third of them who would be in that bucket of they're not in a legal role or whatever, so they couldn't be members. Um, so of that remaining two thirds, um, about just over half of the people that bought were community members. So it's working exceptionally well as a niche channel for sales, which is really good. And I think if you can frame it to sales in that way like this is a really great way to engage people that you want to sell to without actually selling to them here and um, they get it and then when they look at the the numbers at the end of the quarter they're, they're pretty happy mm. 
I mean, some of those numbers are just incredible. Um, a 60% open rate. I think, you know, we all, we all look at kind of 25, 30% as being a good day at the office. 60% is phenomenal. Um, but as you say, you know, when you're in a startup environment, you've got venture capitalists breathing down your neck, it's about growth, 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 and growth and revenue. Um, it's phenomenal that you can kind of draw that link back to, you know, all the business we collected during this quarter, you know, X number were either part of the community or could have been part of the community. I think, yeah, you know, I think, with- I think just, just to the point earlier as well, it's like, the reason I think those open rates are so high is the um, very tight entry criteria because it's quite hard once your marketing newsletter gets bigger and bigger and bigger unless you're very very specialist it's quite hard to appeal to all your readers it's just not really that easy to write like one email that they'll all find interesting but if you've made it hyper specific that list of people it's much easier so um, I think that's why it works Definitely. I mean, with hindsight now, you can kind of look back and say, you know, obviously this was the right move for us to make. Um, I'm conscious. No, I'm curious though, if we take it right back to the beginning, you know, mm. you're, you're a startup marketer, you're working in a startup, there's 101 different channels that you could choose to invest your time in. And you've got to be super selective because there's only, you know, uh, a few of you to, to actually come in every day in the office and, and make something happen. You know, when did you recognize there was this need that actually a community should exist? Talk me through the process of, and then talk me through the process of pulling it together from the initial idea all the way through to launch. Yeah, I think um, on, on how we kind of realized this was a good thing to do, we already had kind of an informal community um, around the company, not really intentionally, but um, at the company were quite big on, um, I guess what you would call ICP-led content. We like to put the people that buy the product or like the, the persona that we're talking to at the front of the content. Like a lot of our content is by them. So we publish eBooks by lawyers. Obviously we help them with the writing and all that kind of stuff. But we had this universe of people who are kind of friends of the company who, who support us and get what we do and will be on panels at events and that kind of stuff. Um, and one thing we used to try and grow was, um, it was very successful, successful for a while, was through gated content, which is a very kind of tried and trusted technique, get people to download ebooks, then call them and try and sell to them. We found that we were getting diminished returns on downloads, um, not because of the content performance, like the content was still very good and would get really good engagement and all that kind of stuff. But we already had all the people in the database. So there weren't that many people to convert. And if you think that our ideal customer profile is head of legal or general counsel at a venture-backed scaling company, usually between Series A, Series E, ideally a marketplace or a B2B SaaS company, super narrow. There's not too many of those people. Um, and we found it was just a bit inefficient to be trying to like produce amazing things, send them out, try and engage off the back of them. Um, so then... Um, when we did some analysis of closed deals just to see what was going on with our marketing and conversions, we noticed there's a really common thread of like, when we looked through attribution and tried to work out what actually happened with these people, um, people who had met someone at the company or were kind of our friends in some way were obviously much more likely to buy. There's just some intangible warm lead aspect that was coming from community. Um, so then if you look at the kind of people that buy Jiro, it's like lawyers, Lawyers love a croissant, they love a breakfast. Um, and we used to do breakfast events, which are a really great um, sales tactic because a lawyer's day usually starts at like 9.15, 9.30 in house lawyer. By five o'clock, it's like a hellscape. Everything's gone wrong, mm. risk, problems, like nightmare, especially in a scale-up. Um, and they're still working by seven, eight o'clock often. But at nine o'clock, 
nothing's gone wrong yet. So they're just totally ready for breakfast. Um, and we found that with COVID and the lockdown, that was just switched off overnight. All that stuff disappeared. Um, and for our particular kind of lawyer, like the ICP for sure, it's quite a lonely role sometimes. You're going to be probably the first lawyer into a tech company. Everyone else is probably going to be like a little bit younger than you, like just, just enough that you'll notice. Um, they're going to look at you as some kind of scary, serious person. They've all just been doing stuff on laptops until now. And now there's like a lawyer here who's going to be telling them what not to do. Probably you are hired too late, especially in a, a, a sector like fintech, for example, because regulated, like the investors will have got to the B round and thought, God, you guys need a lawyer. I think some of this you're doing looks quite risky. Um, so you just have this really difficult job and you have a very unique set of challenges and you probably come from a very challenging environment in a law firm, but differently challenging. Um, so we realized that, that peer knowledge sharing was super important and really, really, really valuable. So like my founder has just told me that we're opening in Israel next week. And like, I don't know any of the employment law. Has anyone had to do that? Well, like I'm looking at our options agreement and I think this bit is not like enforceable what do i do about that or like does anyone know an ip specialist in france like this kind of stuff um and we found that that peer knowledge stuff was just so valuable and completely missing during covid and we thought like we can probably do this we know enough people particularly in this time zone there are a couple of communities in the us that do this really well but like very simply they can't run breakfast events for european companies because they're all asleep um so we thought let's just try this and see what happens and we want to be first um, so then I decided that I would do it and that was the end of my life. <laughs> and here we are 12 months later with some great metrics to, uh, to shout about. I mean, you, you mentioned that there's only a handful of you, um, working at Juro on, on this, uh, how is kind of community factoring into the rest of your Marcom stack? I mean, you know, is, are there times in the week where it's like, all hands on deck. We need to create this newsletter or this piece of content for the community. Is your kind of other content marketers in your team creating content for both the community itself and for external audiences? Like how is that all kind of managed within, within the marketing team? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, with, with difficulty, because it's quite hard. <laughs> I think um, one thing that I've learned having worked at a startup for a while is that focus solves all your problems. So if you just devote two days to one project, doing nothing else, being very strict, you'll get it done. The problem with community is that it's always on. You can't mm -hmm. be like, okay, I'll ignore it for three days while I do this other thing. Because you need to try and ferment discussion. Um, so it can be quite difficult. So the way we, uh, I think, became successful at it, because in the beginning it took a bit of a learning curve, was specialization. So... Um, there are two people on the team, me and someone else, and then we have various freelancers that, that work with us. Um, quite early on, I decided to specialize the person in my team towards community because it's just where her skill set was stronger. The other big bucket of stuff we do is mainly around organic search, um, and that tends to be handled by me and freelancers. Just making that distinction um, mm. was quite impactful in terms of making sure we, we had enough time to do it. I think also being super organized, the difference between a community and a mailing list is events. Like if people don't show up to a thing on time, because like at a specific time together, you don't have a community. Planning events is quite hard. <laughs> you know, I'm a writer, really. It's not really my thing, like planning and running events. And in the early days, the first few very nervous Zoom calls where it's like three minutes past and no one's dialed in, were quite nerve-wracking and quite painful. 
And um, the way we solved that was just sprinting to a certain number of members where we knew that we'd always have enough people on the call for it to not be um, awkward, which we, we've got to now, so that's good. Um, but it was difficult. Like the early, the early days were quite difficult. So this other person in your team who you've kind of tasked with uh, focusing on, on the community part, are they kind of in the Slack channel every day asking questions, getting involved in conversations, just trying to kind of stir up engagement? Um, yeah. So if, if you think about the artifacts, like what community actually is, is um, in terms of tasks. So there's the jobs board, which needs to be updated constantly. Um which is a really big value add. And that was something I learned really early on. I did some discovery with other people who built communities. And my main question, like my only question was like, how do you get people to engage in the beginning when there's like four of you? They're not going to open you. They're going to turn up, see an empty room and then leave. Um, and everyone said the same thing, which was like jobs. People are always people are always looking for another job. So it's funny you say to... that because like I, I, I'm part of a few Slack groups um, to do with marketing and other things. And every day I log in, if no other channel is updated, it's the jobs channel every single day. That one is updated in every one of my Slack groups. Yeah, I think it's just um, if you want people to open your email, just put some jobs in there because that, that is like a labor saving activity. And in theory, everyone should be interested in it. Um, so we did, we focused on that at first, but that needs to be done all the time. Then the newsletter is weekly. So in practice, that's created on a Friday because it goes out on a Monday morning. Um, so that's a bit of work there. And then through reminders and stuff like that, we, we make sure that we're chipping in in the group all the time. Um, the actual members of the company who are allowed in the group, obviously um, everyone in the marketing team, um, there's only really two of us who do anything in community, um, both the founders of the company. One thing that was definitely a benefit for people joining was having direct access to the founders. So that's both for customers. There's a private channel for customers who can ask the founders about roadmap and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for people who aren't customers who just enjoy being in a Slack group with the CEO, it's, it's just like a nice little benefit. Um, so they're allowed in and customer success are allowed in, but mainly to watch. It's just to see if any customers are showing any signs of being unhappy because um, it's, it's never happened so far, but we're a disgruntled customer to start posting in the group about being unhappy. That would obviously be quite bad. Um, so they just keep an eye on it, see if anything like that happens, but it hasn't. Um, and that's it. They're the, they're the only people we let in. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not too hard in terms of um, that element of it, but it's the it's very time consuming. So that's the main thing. And the event planning, like you need to give an event a certain lead time to get people to sign up, and then you need to give a lead time from before when you launch the event to make sure you have a panel, and then you need a lead time before that to make sure you've thought about what the event is going to be and make sure it's good. So that planning element was quite hard to ramp up, but we've done that quite well now, I think. From my experience, once you've kind of developed a formula of how to run these events and you've kind of got that framework in place, it does become a lot easier. And I don't know what your what your experience is like. For me, the lead time for registration to an event, I was surprised, but the shorter, the better. You know, I've run mm. very successful webinars where I've only given seven days notice, you know, um, this is happening. Um, and we've seen, you know, bumper signups, registrations versus giving it a four-week lead time. I think particularly during covid everyone's getting bombarded with webinar requests all the time. And you may, if you've got four weeks before it starts, say, oh yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. And then a month later, you've forgotten about it or the importance around why you subscribe to it in the first place, you've forgotten. So um, I don't know what you found, what you I found. So, yeah, the, the, the metric we tend to use is, so the, the brief, the, the weekly email goes out on a Monday morning. 
um, you need two briefs to have enough for an event. So you need it to be live before the weekend twice to be able to have it the following week. So you need 10 days lead time for an event um, once it's all ready to be launched. Um, but I mean, even then it's been, it's just really interesting. Like we, we used to do webinars, like everyone else does, like public webinars. Um, and we'd advertise it kind of three, four weeks in advance and just try everything we could to get signups and like some paid promotion or whatever it was, send a load of emails and we like eke our way up to a hundred signups kind of thing. 50 of them would be useless because it'd just be like people we can't sell to. And then half of them won't turn up. It's just so much work. Um, and then I remember one time with this, we came up with an idea for an event on a Wednesday. So we had it ready for the email on the Friday. Um, the not the following Monday, but the Monday after we held the event, we had 30 people on the line and they were all like perfect customers. I think there was an 80% drop, 80% attendance rate from sign up to um, attendance. And the event was spectacular and everyone really enjoyed it. And we got five out of five feedback for our half goods. And we're like, why did we spend a year messing around with webinars when we could just do this? Like everyone on this call is perfect and we've done no work to, to make it happen. So <laughs> it's good. I mean, the, the downside is in the early days, like to really make it a community, I use, we can talk about tech if you want. Um, I use a thing called Luma to run the community, which mm -hmm. is effectively an extremely good front end for your um, Zoom calls because I find Zoom landing pages and emails just like disgustingly ugly. Yeah. Um, and our brand is very visually rich, so it just wasn't good enough. So I use this other thing. Um, but I run all of the events as meetings, not webinars, so everyone can see how many other people are on the call, which is quite high risk in the beginning. Um, because if there's like three people, then they can see there's only two other people. Mm. Um, but once you've got to a scale where the numbers are good enough, it's actually great because people can just unmute and come in and it's much more organic. Um, but yeah, that was quite quite um, uh, nerve-wracking uh, at first when there'd just be like two of us on the call. It, it always is. There's that moment of dread um, as the clock is slowly ticking past the hour and you're expecting people to turn up and they're not doing it. You mentioned, obviously, so the community is run on a Slack group. You use Luma for webinars. What I'd be interested to dig into a little bit with you is, you know, you mentioned um, the kind of the qualification of deals um, that you guys are analyzing and seeing these kind of high percentages of um, deals converting that either would qualify to be members of the community or indeed are members of the community. Mm -hmm. Is that is that a joined up CRM that you're using with sales to to track that? How are you evaluating that that part of the equation? Yeah, so the, the tech stack is is pretty cool. So there's um, we use Typeform for onboarding. Um, so when people apply, they have to go through a Typeform, which effectively qualifies them um, and lets me understand if they can come in or not. Then me or a member of my team are the arbiters of whether people can come in or not. How that actually happens is we use HubSpot for our marketing automation, and we have a custom property of community member, um, which we change from blank to yes or no. If it's no, they get a very polite rejection email. And if it's yes, they get an onboarding email to Slack. So they get a, like great news you're in, can't wait to see you kind of thing. Um, and a link to the Slack group, which they can then join. Um, so there's a, a workflow set up in HubSpot there. But there's also um, some Zapier work going on between uh, Luma, which we use for the event signups on HubSpot because we want people to know, like if, for example, the sales team is working on a particular customer and they've just come to an event that we run in community about contracts, then I want the sales team to know that. Um, so anything they do in community gets pushed by Zapier back into HubSpot to enrich that record. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then 
the, the some of the member stuff that we manage in Notion, like the jobs board, we we do in Notion. But yeah, that that's kind of the the loop there. Um, and we can probably upgrade that a little bit, but it's it's good enough for now. And then everything else, like the pages they visit on the site and stuff, is just normal intent scoring and all that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, that's, re- that's really interesting. And I, I was talking to someone the other day actually about building B2B communities and uh, she was telling me that nailing the, the tech stack that's going to manage all of this, they, they were building it on similar pillars to you in that it was a, uh, you know, it was events, uh, networking and um, knowledge. So, you know, pieces of content mm-hmm. that were made specifically for, for, for that community. She was telling me the number one takeaway that she would have for anyone at the beginning of their community building career would be, you know, get the tech as right as possible at the start. You know, it can always be better and you can always find tools to optimize and fine tune some of the processes, but it's worth spending that time, committing that time at the start to making sure the tech stack is working as you intend it to, um, uh, to, to create a great onboarding experience for, for community members, but also to get that validation and attribution around the success of the community so you can continue getting budget for it and building that credibility internally. You know, she, she, yeah. she was telling me that that, commute, that tech stack was super important. Definitely. Is. Uh, and if you think that um, lots of the company like can't join, isn't allowed to join, like by definition, they don't know what's happening in there. So having a really clear way of making visible that the kind of activity of what's happening in there, but also the value um, is, is really important because otherwise people are just going to think you're messing around in a group and like, oh, what's Tom doing today? He's just doing something in his little Slack group. Um, I think on the um, on the kind of tech stack side of things as well, one thing that we focused on quite a lot and I, it was really good input from um, our founders actually who, who sort of been through some of this stuff before is like, with all content, I'm a really big believer in like empathy. You just always need to be thinking about the experience of the person you're trying to talk to. And I think with, um, I've seen a few other communities trying to do something similar-ish to what we do, but not necessarily with a strict criteria, but using quite odd platforms and odd setups and stuff. Just like, don't do it. Just make it as simple as possible because you need to get people in. Like if um, these kind of people, all of their companies live in Slack. So there was never any discussion like, should we use Slack? Should we use Teams? Should we use Guild? What's the other one? The other one. Um, oh, um, uh, Mighty Networks. This, this Discord. Discord is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just use Slack because like at best, these are lawyers, right? They're used to working with Word documents. Um, at best, they understand how to use Slack. At worst, they're going to be like, yeah, I've had the link. What's this? How do I install this on my desktop? Oh, I can't forget it. Yeah. So just make things as easy as possible for people to join. Um, and again, to give them a shout out, that's one of the things I really like about Luma is that it just does all that calendar stuff for you and you don't need to worry about any of it. It makes it really easy to build landing pages as well. So that's definitely been a good one. And, and something else that is exceptionally valuable, and I'm sure there are other platforms that do this, but you can refuse um, people signing up for your events. You can reject their signups. Because um, what we found was that people would forward it to their friends. Um, like other colleagues in the company who are not lawyers. Um, and occasionally we might let them come just like on a, on a one-off basis. So we did one event on um, the legal and operational aspects of um, setting up a working from anywhere policy, which is actually like super complex legally. And we found that there were people who wanted to invite their HR teams to learn about it. So we were happy to do that. But if they send it to a friend at another tech company and they try and join the event, 
I need them to join community before they can come to the event. So, because if they just come to the event, um, they're not in HubSpot, they're not part of this whole nurture thing. Um, so that's super valuable, like being able to let people in and out, I think is really good. Like you say, the people that you are rejecting, you're following up with. And I think that kind of talks to your point about empathy, right? It'd be easy enough for you just to say, reject, forget, I don't need to worry about that anymore. I think the fact that you're taking that extra step to tell the people you are rejecting, here is the reason why. It's a great demonstration of that empathy, right? It's it's because we are just being very selective on who's in this community and they've got to fit, fit our criteria. Yeah, and it's about them, not us. Like, you know, in theory, if anyone's interested in the company and wants to come and be part of a Slack group where they're going to get product updates occasionally, that like if you just don't care about anything except revenue, let them all in. Like, great. Mm. But um, the point is that they wouldn't get value from it. It's not that like I don't think we could nurture them in the group, but if it's just like, 200 lawyers talking about um, good and bad employment lawyers in Germany that they've worked with. It's just not relevant for, for someone joining. And I, I don't want to like waste their time and get them in a group and like have them not enjoy it and be like, oh, this group's crap and it's just pointless. So it's as much about them as it is about us. Hmm. You've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm going to ask you directly, you know, those, those first few months where you were trying to build momentum around the group and get the first members to join Juro's community. What were some of the kind of tactics that you use there to encourage people to, to get on board? Yeah. Nerve wracking. I think um, when we decided to do it, I think um, I knew there were enough people to make a success of it eventually, but I was worried about week one, week two. Um, So the way we approached that really was a bit like early stage sales, just like hustle, like cheap, Warm intros, you know, like mm. if there are people, you know, who are already customers, for example, who get value from products and like talk to us all the time anyway, um, like those are the kind of people you should target or people who've been featured in our content, um, people who we know are kind of LinkedIn people and are quite comfortable with this kind of conversation. They would be the people to target. And also we were really honest, with, like in our um, outreach emails. So we emailed them all personally. All the emails were personalized as well by me or by the CEO who invited some of them. And we did make it very clear, like you are going to walk into an empty room. So please be patient while we fill it with stuff. And we really like do, we're very grateful for your support while we make this happen and trust us it's going to be worth it. Um, but just be ready for a rocky week one kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and they were all just really nice. They all just came in. I was watching like the FinTech, uh, the general counsel of one fintech unicorn and the general counsel of another fintech unicorn talking about um parenting and lockdown I was, that was the first moment when i was like this is actually going to work um so yeah i think just being honest with people like if you set yourself set this up as like if you're trying to launch a community and you try to position it as like this is already amazing come and join us and it's not then people will see that it's not and they'll leave but if you're honest with them and you make it clear that you want to build something with them and for them they'll probably understand what is the general proportion um, of work conversation versus kind of personal conversations for want of a better term within the Slack group? I think it's really interesting what you say there about parenting. I mean, you know, you, I think it's, there's this misnomer with B2B marketing that, you know, we're marketing to businesses and we're not, you know, we're marketing to people who work for those businesses and they all have lives and they all switch off at the end of the day, you know, after a stressful day at 8 PM and then they pour themselves a long stiff drink and maybe they do log into Slack and they just want to blow off some steam talking to other people in their network about anything other than work. I mean, do you see a lot of kind of personal chat in the group as well? 
Um, that's a good question. I think some. So I guess there's a few things to say there. Number one is that these people are lawyers. <laughs> they're quite, they're quite risk averse and it's just not, doesn't come naturally to a lawyer to go in a group where there are strangers and talk about problems you're having. It's just not something that's, um, part of legal training, like show of vulnerability kind of thing. Having said that, there are, you know, lawyers are people and some of them are that kind of person. So they will happily share that kind of thing. We do find that a lot of that discussion goes on in DMs um, because some of them do know each other. They trained at the same firm or they used to work together or you know, whatever it might be. Um, and they'll talk to each other privately. I'm kind of fine with that. Like it's very difficult to force people out of DMs. So if that's what they want to do and they're getting value, that's great. Um, so I think there is a, like a non-work channel and we do talk about stuff that's not necessarily about being a lawyer at scale up. Um, one thing that is really nice is celebrating like all of these companies, you know, every day, one of them's having some kind of fundraising announcement. Um, and I think the, the other lawyers appreciate to a different extent than their colleagues might what the lawyer had to do to make that funding round happen. So if you're a, employee in, I don't know, sales or an engineer or something at a startup, you probably don't really know what's involved in going through a fundraising round and the diligence and the cap table and all this managing outside counsel and mediating between bankers and like founders and all this kind of stuff. It's incredibly stressful when it's like a six month project where you've probably been working on it like day and night and you've been part of a small group. It's been very stressful. Um, so it's really nice seeing them celebrate each other's successes in that regard, even when they're competitor companies, because they have a very unique ability to understand how difficult that was for the other person. So we do make sure to always call out those funding rounds. And some of them are absolutely bananas. I mean, we have like the, the, the caliber of member has probably exceeded my wildest ambitions. So we have just all the big European tech companies you can think of like Monzo, Revolut, Trustpilot, Delivery, UiPath, all these kind of European giants are all in there. And it would be like, uh, we just closed the 500 million funding round. It's like, wow, what was that like? <laughs> party emoji, party emoji, party emoji. Yeah. yeah. Money <laughs> That's, emoji. Exactly. That's great. And I guess it all just kind of contributes to this wider brand affinity. That, that's being developed around Juro, you know, whilst obviously it's their success, you know, you're creating a forum for them to celebrate that success with, like you say, the peers that are going to uh, most likely appreciate it, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a big kind of reflected glory element of it as well, because one thing we found with our informal community in the early days was the, the brands and companies that we would work with in our content, people would assume their customers. And that would give us like social proof that we didn't really have, um, but people would just assume because like the general counsel of X company was writing a blog for us that we knew them and they were a customer and they weren't. I mean, often they are now, but it's really good. It just puts us in the mix with those companies and there's a bit of uh, brand shine that happens there. And, and it does enable us to do some really cool things like um, some companies that are Jura customers. We've been through a spate this year of, like they're all doing IPOs. So like um, Trustpilot, Delivery, Kazi is next, and Babylon Health, and there's another one. Um, just a stream of our customers going public. And so we had a private event on um, the lawyer's role in managing the IPO. And we had three GCs on the panel who had all led companies through IPOs. I don't really think anyone else could have pulled that off. Like it's so specific, but extraordinarily valuable. Like here are three general counsel of companies that have um, listed on 
the London Stock Exchange, as probably about 50 of you are considering doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that is like real magic and um, it's very, very rewarding. You, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, prior, prior to the community, you were doing a lot of just, you know, um, par for the course, uh, content marketing, lead gen initiatives, case studies, white papers, things like that, webinar panels. Um, and I don't know what it's been, your experience has been like when trying to pull clients uh, together to do some of this more public facing content. I come from a world where primarily working in sports, um, working in sports, a lot of our clients have uh, agreements with brands, sponsorship agreements with brands that commercially prevent them from doing any sort of external promotion with their tech vendors like us um, mm-hmm. because you know they're paying us and they've got Coke paying them for the privilege of you know the right for that association. I- I'm curious to know whether or not you noticed a difference in terms of getting some of these GCs on board to do content exclusive for the community versus doing content for an external audience was it easier harder or, or the same um it's a good question i mean the short answer is i think easier because because we've had that problem as well where like we have one customer who is one of the three largest car manufacturers in the world but when we asked them about doing a case study they said yeah sure but you just got to pay three hundred thousand dollars to license exactly. our IP. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we didn't we didn't want to do that so so we didn't but um i think if you ask um I mean, in our case, a lawyer, but if you ask, um, let's say like a thought leader, someone with some subject matter expertise to do content um, and they know it's explicitly for an audience of their peers, that's a different ask to like, do you want to be in our marketing? And um, if you position the, the second kind of ask well enough, you can still do it. And we have done it. We published like an ebook called Legal for Scale-Ups last year or the year before, um, no, last year which was just spectacularly successful and had all these amazing GCs in it. Um, and they were happy to be in it partly because it was a great group of people we were collecting together. But for community, we launched um, like a community only magazine um, this last quarter called The Bundle, um, in which we follow up with the best kind of the best received events from the previous quarter and then get them to produce something uh, longer and more authoritative for the members about the, the um, panel they were part of or the, the topic they talked about. And I think our success rate in getting people to contribute was 100%. Everyone we asked did it, um, and it was like really straightforward. <laughs> so um, I think it's much easier is the answer to that question um, because they know that, that like there's, there's not any ambiguity about who it's for, and they can see the mm. distribution. Um, so they know that you're not, they're not being exploited for anything. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good tactic. I guess it's a shift mentally from you know this is something that benefits Juro to something that this is this is what's going to benefit the community of my peers. And yeah, you know, there's that halo effect that Juro benefits from as being the facilitator of that forum. But um, yeah, it's, it's more about yeah. the community, right? Than the it, brand. Because it's a tightrope to walk that. And, it, and it's very difficult with um, outward facing content where you want to provide something that's valuable. You want to deliver value to um, your audience, especially if you're asking them to hand over their details with the expectation they're going to be marketed to afterwards. To do that, to give people loads of value and slightly push your product a bit, is actually quite difficult. Um, so the good thing about community is we just completely removed the need to do that other bit. Like we can post about the product and the group and we do, um, but people don't need to read it if they don't want to. So it means that the, the kind of value-led thought leadership um, content driven by insights that we produce for the ideal customers doesn't really need to have a product push at all. 
because like they've already converted so we don't need to worry about getting them in anywhere like they're already in there we own the airwaves so the approach is just give them as much value as possible um and it's really about kind of trust and authority you just want to absolutely max out your authority with this group um and it also makes life a bit easier rather than working out subtle ways to product market in your content Absolutely. Tom, I'm conscious of time. Um, I had about six or seven more questions I wanted to ask you, um, but we've mm. just run out. So we're going to bring you on for a, for a second episode, if you're willing, of course, to dive into this mm. in a little bit more detail. But well, I only do two things, community and search. And we haven't talked about search. I'll do that another time. I've never done an episode on search. So actually, I'm, I'm definitely going to hit you up for that. One final question before I let you go. Um, apart from yourself talking about search, who do you think I should interview next on B2B Better? Um, God. Who should I put for stardom? I think, um, I mean, there's lots of very impressive people that I've worked with, but um, a former colleague of mine, uh, Alistair Corsi, who's now the chief marketing officer at Cognizant, which is a um, B2B startup in the UK. Um, she's very interesting to talk to, particularly about scaling, uh, kind of making data-driven decisions. Um, and I think my feedback on Alice is always like, I don't think I've ever met anyone in marketing who is as relentless as she is. So she's going to find out what works and then she's absolutely relentless in pursuing it. So um, she'd be a good person to talk to. I'll definitely be hitting you up for an introduction to Alice at some point in the future. But otherwise, Tom, for anyone who's listening to this podcast and they want to learn more about you or follow you on social media, where can they find you? Um, just find me on LinkedIn. There's not many Tom Bangays on LinkedIn, so I'm quite easy to find. Excellent. Well, I'll drop a link to your profile in the description of this episode to make it easier for folks. But otherwise, Tom, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better. Always been, uh, always been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, anytime. That's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out my previous episodes via the link in the description. Or if you fancy getting a nice hot steaming mug of B2B marketing advice on how to build an audience for your brand, you can sign up to my newsletter, the B2B Byte, which goes out every Monday. I'll drop the link to that also in the description of this episode. See you next time.